postpartum body odor. It is a totally natural phenomenon because your body chemistry changes after giving birth. And so sometimes that means that what worked before is no longer effective. But I am excited to say that now there is a solution for that stubborn odor. The Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant is a completely natural deodorant made by a postpartum mom who went through it herself. And it works by eliminating and preventing bacterial body odor without covering up your skin's comforting smell to your baby while giving you 12 hours of odor control. And let me tell you, it actually works. Here at the house, we've all been trying it and loving it. Now, before you think, ew, you're sharing a deodorant with your husband and daughter, let me explain that this full-body deodorant comes in a convenient pump applicator that lets you apply it anywhere on your body with no bacteria traveling on the deodorant, so no ew involved. We also love that the Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant has a delightful natural scent of USDA certified organic extracts that smell like a pink sugar cookie with lemon frosting. I thought this would be a little strange, but it's actually amazing. Also, the Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant is free from artificial fragrances and any kind of senoestrogens or herbs that can interfere with breastfeeding. Find your Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant at postpartumdeodorant.com. That's postpartumdeodorant.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off through the month of May. Get your Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant now at postpartumdeodorant.com and start smelling more like yourself again. Pregnancy and postpartum are some of the most nutritionally demanding times of your life, which makes sense because you're basically acting as your baby's pantry while pregnant or nursing. That's why the quality of your prenatal supplements is so vitally important. Hands down, the one I recommend is needed. So I'm thrilled to say that if you use the code BIRTHFUL at thisisneeded.com, you can get 20% off your first month of needed products. Needed is the number one nutrition brand recommended and used by me and over 4,000 practitioners from nutritionists to midwives, functional medicine doctors, and OBGYNs. Needed is for anyone trying to conceive, pregnant, postpartum, and really, this is goodness you can use even before and beyond the perinatal years. Along with prenatals, Needed offers premium supplements for every stage, from egg quality support to a lactation support plan, a stress and sleep support plan, and a gut health plan. In fact, I've had clients rave about Needed's pre and probiotic formula, saying how much better it made them feel compared to their usual probiotics. And to me, Needed's hydration support packets, which only have ingredients you can pronounce, are a must in any doula or hospital bag. Also, Needed's prenatal multi is available in capsules and easy-to-take vanilla powder for those with nausea or pill fatigue. Head over to thisisneeded.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of Needed products. That's thisisneeded.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of Needed products.
Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today we'll be talking about cannabis use during pregnancy and breastfeeding. With legalization of cannabis around the world expanding, it's time to have a nuanced conversation. What do we know about health risks? What about legal risks? Is a non-biased risk-benefit analysis centered on harm reduction possible? And what would that look like? Heather Thompson has answers. Stay tuned. The Birthful Podcast. Talking to maternity pros and new parents to inform your intuition. Hello, hello, mighty parents and parents-to-be. Happy holidays and happy end of the year. And in fact, the decade. I cannot believe we are about to enter a new decade. Thank you so very much for making this year a wonderful year with all the love you give the show and for all your messages about how birthful was a big part of your pregnancy. I really love them. If what you hear is helpful, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a thing. All right. So onward to today's episode. You may be aware that cannabis is fully legal in Canada and in over a fifth of the United States, as well as it being decriminalized in a growing number of places. But legality does not equal safety. Heather Thompson is here for a nuanced conversation on the complex topic of cannabis use during pregnancy and breastfeeding. And whatever your thoughts may already be on this topic, what thoughts you might have on this topic, set aside your biases so you can dive deeply with us in considering things that you may not have thought of before. I know I learned a lot during this conversation and in preparation for the episode. So here we go. Welcome, Heather. I am so delighted to have you here on the podcast today. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah. And we had the good fortune, and I would say, uh, to me, it's a good fortune, that we were able to connect face-to-face this year um, at the Evidence-Based Birth Conference. And that was definitely so good to put a face to a person that I already had so much respect for. Here, here. I online world is lovely for us learning to know each other, and it's always great to see people in person. Mm-hmm. And so the topic we're going to, this is the topic that you've been immersed in for quite a few years now, um, and that's been coming up more and more lately. So I I was delighted as well when you suggested that we talk about this. It's the use of cannab- cannabis in pregnancy and, and postpartum related right. to breastfeeding, and that's like a big topic. So I want, and that I am not very familiar with at all. So I want you to definitely lead the conversation. Like what needs to be considered when having this discussion? Yeah. Um, well, let me just give you a little bit of background too and sort of how I came to talk about this. Um, I have a PhD in molecular and cellular biology. So um, I am trained as a scientist, did basic science for many years. And when cannabis became legal here in my home state of Colorado, I was working as the director of research at a community midwife-led freestanding birth center. And so I was already deeply immersed in the birth world. And I, um, at that point, had been a postpartum doula for, I don't know, 10 or so years. Um, It's been about 17 years of postpartum doula work for me. So I also had been um, at people's bedsides, literally, as they were navigating the questions around cannabis, even before it was legal. Once it became legal, I had doctors and midwives and nurses and lactation folks reaching out to me to say, what do you know from the scientific literature? We're having to answer a whole new host of questions. 
Um, so I really got drawn into the conversation. It wasn't necessarily a conversation that I sought out initially. And I have found in talking about cannabis and advocating for folks who choose cannabis as medicine here in Colorado, I have grown quite passionate about um, advocating for parental autonomy and agency when it comes to this conversation and really rooting this conversation in a risk-benefit harm reduction place rather than one that is abstinence-based or really punitive. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and, and, and so 17 years as a doula, and then that launched you into this these questions. Um, you also, this past year, co-authored or participated in a paper relating to breastfeeding and cannabis use. Yes. And and you mentioned as I was like I I went deep in your website and like downloaded <laughs> you have so many great resources and PDFs there and I was reading them all. I was like, "Oh my god. Oh my yes. god. Oh my god." Yes. Um but you it, it, you said, you know, you had learned a lot through the writing this process and helping families. Um navigate the families that that encounter cps because of cannabis use um right. since 2014 and you've learned so much so i how do you want to us to like jump into this conversation do you want to go like prenatal pregnancy this is what we need to know and breastfeeding this is what we need to know or does it all mesh together and going from your experiences well you know let's start with the question i get asked the most which is is perinatal cannabis use safe? Uh, everybody wants to know that. They And, and it's funny, people say, uh, just give me the lowdown, the skinny, the two sentence answer, is it safe or not? So I will start this conversation by saying that I don't use the word safe to describe cannabis use. I think there are very few things that are actually safe, uh, either in pregnancy or lactation or life in general. Um, and I think that when we're talking about what people do with their lives during pregnancy and lactation, we really need to have a risk-benefit conversation. Uh, you know, we know driving while pregnant is not actually a safe activity. Um, and we use seatbelts and tell people to be careful and be cautious and understand that driving has to be a part of their life. And um, so I don't use the word safe, but what I can tell you from the scientific literature and what we know right now is that we have been studying cannabis use during pregnancy for a pretty long time in the U.S., um, a little over 30 years. We started, uh, there was a research project started in inner city Pittsburgh in the 80s uh, that followed a group of people up until the current day and have been describing outcomes of the kids. What I will say about that data set, however, is that um, the initial reason for the study was to examine the crack epidemic, which was happening in inner city there. Um, and we have subsequently learned that the idea of a crack baby, you know, that a baby is damaged by exposure to cocaine, in utero has turned out to be a false narrative. There really is no single way to describe the outcomes associated with cocaine use. And what we know is that if a kiddo grows up in a 
environment that is healthy for childhood development, then the exposure to cocaine is not detectable throughout their lifetime. So I want to root the science itself, even in the perspective of what we were looking at at that time. The perspective was one of believing exposure to substances was harmful. This was funded by, is continued to be funded by the National Institutes of Drug Abuse. And so there is a certain perspective that even goes into the research. So what we have found most reliably, there's also a study in Canada, there's a long-term study in the Netherlands, and consistently um, the outcome we see most often with heavy cannabis use, and I want to be really clear about this part, we're not really looking at outcomes related to occasional or periodic cannabis use. We're really looking at folks who use cannabis on a daily or near daily um, routine throughout the majority of their pregnancy. And what we can see is some um, small for gestational age or low birth weight babies. Occasionally we see outcomes related to preterm birth. And, you know, none of those are super surprising. The majority of folks that I encounter and that research describes are um, smoking cannabis flower. So um, anything that you smoke is going to have a potential risk of, um, you know, blood flow changes and potential increased risk of low birth weight. Um, so that, that is really the most consistent outcome that we see throughout all the literature. That being said, in and of itself, low birth weight, small for gestational age, preterm birth do not have to be necessarily bad outcomes um, in and of themselves. They always have to be evaluated in the context of the environment. What else is going on in this family's life? Was there an overlay of poverty? Do we have lots of stress? Is there trauma? You know, what is the context of the impact of prenatal cannabis use? Mm -hmm. And there was, you just, let's unpack all of that for a little bit, yeah. because <laughs> there was so much there. Um, so in terms, it's important to, what I heard was it is important to figure out um, to deter to differentiate between occasional use and more of a chronic use. Exactly. Um, that there is a we have to pay attention that we're not doing that correlation isn't causation. So Correct. that just because somebody with a daily use, the research is showing that may have a higher risk for low low birth weight or small gestational age or preterm um, baby, it doesn't mean that it's because of that daily use. There can be other things that influence that, whether it's what else is the context of their lives in terms of poverty and stress and other factors. Exactly. Perfect summary. Exactly right. Excellent. Um, and that also... All the things that like nothing that we do in our lives is safe. <laughs> There's always yeah. a risk to something. Um, yes. So, so viewing it from the end, that we also have to kind of check our biases at the door from what you were saying of, for example, that these studies were looking specifically trying to determine the idea of a crack baby and what that um, looks like and understanding that there isn't really any specific core, uh, causa causation between substance abuse and these what people describe as crack babies. 
Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And, you know, I mean, and taken one step further, in fact, the substances that show the most consistent harm when um, used prenatally are cigarettes and alcohol. So the idea that the illicit drugs um, are, quote unquote, the harder drugs and therefore cause more, more harm is not actually based in research. And that also, as I was reading, it led me to, you know, the, the great point that legalization doesn't equate safety at all um, because of what you just said about alcohol, caffeine, cigarettes being causing harm even though they're illegal or having the potential to cause harm even though they're illegal. But seeing it both ways, that also the legalization of cannabis doesn't equal safety at the same time. Exactly. And I would offer that we didn't criminalize cannabis because we thought it was unsafe either. Um, I mean, cannabis at one point was part of our U.S. pharmacopoeia here until the early 1940s. Um, it was actually sold in pharmacies and used usually in tincture form for all the things you'd imagine to improve mood, to reduce nausea, to help with menstrual cramps. Um, the sorts of things you hear about it being used now. So it really, it was, it was not made uh, illegal because we were worried that it was unsafe either. It was made illegal for uh, political and racist reasons. Hmm. And let's put that on the shelf for a bit. I don't want yeah. to go down <laughs> that rabbit hole just exactly. yet. Maybe if we have time at the end, we'll go, we'll step into that. <laughs> right. Um, because I, I yeah, I, there's so much thoughts that come with that to my mind, um, totally. in terms of like other things that we use in the pharmacopedia, including like, you know, cocaine and arsenic, which totally. I know are so, so harmful. Um, totally. so, okay. I'm not trying to equate, but so considering the biases, considering all of the, all the, all the groundwork that you just laid out. Mm -hmm. What do we know in terms of prenatal exposure concretely? Or do uh, we know anything concretely in terms of prenatal exposure? Well, um, yeah, concrete is a very concrete word. Mm. Um, I mean, I think that the evidence points to chronic use, like I said, can increase the risk for low birth weight small for gestational age. Um, there is some evidence that suggests that um, prenatal cannabis use increases the risk for NICU admission. I struggle with NICU admission as a good marker of newborn health outcomes, because in my experience, particularly in the context of prenatal substance use, if someone is suspected to be known to use substances prenatally, their baby may most likely will have a higher chance of going to the NICU just because the labor and delivery staff know that. It's not necessarily a health risk per se. So I don't talk so much about the NICU admission piece, even though that is another consistent um, element of the scientific literature. So I, from my view, those are the things we know most concretely. The other pieces that go into public health messaging, uh, particularly here in Colorado, are the, uh, the concept that prenatal cannabis use will result in cogniz 
uh, cognitive or achievement de achievement deficits in uh, elementary school, middle school, and high school aged kids. And I would offer that that is a A, a real link that is lacking in very much nuance. <laughs> the data that show that are for the most part derived from this study in the US where 60% of the folks were African-American mothers living singly and raising kids on their own and living in poverty. And we know for sure that poverty can cause academic achievement issues in um, kiddos when they reach school age. And to correlate it with cannabis and to be as forceful as some of the public health messaging that I've seen, I don't think that link is nearly as clear as we think it is. Um, I'm not saying it might not be shown to be true. I, as a person who reads the scientific literature though, feel pretty frustrated with the idea that that is a clear result of prenatal cannabis use. And it also frustrates me because the idea of cognitive achievement in kiddos is such a complex one with so many things that impact that, both prenatally and throughout their lifetimes. And I wish we were unpacking the other factors that are usually involved in the research that suggests that there's cognitive achievements. And I wish we talked about alcohol, cigarettes, and caffeine, all of which have also been shown to have potential impacts on kiddos when they get to school age and their ability to learn. But we really don't shame folks with that fact in the same way that we are about cannabis right now. Well, and I think the shame is a huge part of this conversation that I really want to get deeper into because it ties into um, also biases and 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 yeah. contained with the public health messages and the legal risks and like there's yeah. a bigger flip side to this than just what we know because of the context societally that we put into that knowing right and people exactly. wanted to report so let's take a quick break and we'll come right back to that and we are back talking with heather thompson about the effects of or just the general discussion about cannabis use in, during pregnancy and breastfeeding what we know and what we need to consider so in those things that we need to consider we took a look at the health risks but we can't have that conversation without legal risks, which are also imbued in that, that stem from the idea of shame and a lot of bias. Yes, for sure. I mean, that would be, this is feeding right into what my next topic would have been, was we talk a lot about the health risks. Most public messaging that I've seen is center on the health risks. And very few folks are giving families clear information on the potential legal and child welfare risks, which can be significant. Um, uh, for example, here in Colorado, we have a law that says a baby who tests positive for exposure to a Schedule I or a Schedule II substance, unless it's prescribed by a physician, is an automatic finding of child abuse and neglect. Well, cannabis is a Schedule I substance, 
And uh, even though we legalized it in the state of Colorado, that law that describes child abuse and neglect has still been in effect. So folks were disclosing their cannabis use to their perinatal health care providers because it was legal and they were thinking they were doing a good job by disclosing this piece that they otherwise might have held close, closer to their um, secret side. And then they're finding that, in fact, they're being um, charged with child abuse and neglect here in the state of Colorado. And charged isn't exactly the right word because it's not a criminal charge, but it's a finding. It means that your name goes on a database as someone who has abused and neglected your child. And it does prohibit you from certain jobs. It prohibits you from certain public housing, can even prohibit you from certain um public benefit systems. So it's a very serious situation and something that most folks have no idea might be coming. Um, and that was the other way that Elephant Circle really stepped into this conversation. My colleague and the founder of Elephant Circle, Indra Lucero, is a lawyer. And so around the time I was getting scientific questions, Indra was fielding questions from folks who'd gotten a letter in the mail saying that they had been founded to child abuse and neglect their child because of prenatal cannabis use. And some folks really hadn't even had a conversation with anybody about it. There hadn't been an investigation. It was just a result of this law. So we really started to try to educate folks. We became a place where people could call when they discovered at some point that their perinatal cannabis use might pose child welfare or legal risks. Um, and not being a lawyer or someone who has been in, exposed to child welfare prior to the last five years, I have learned a lot about um, the role of child welfare in this conversation and the way that child welfare does not operate from a harm reduction point of view. And um, that my demographic, white owning class, US citizen, um, English speaking folks don't have very much community experience with child welfare. And we think the best of a system that sometimes actually is quite punitive and hard to navigate. And so tell me more about that, of your of your experiences, because and what you've learned, um, because I and so from what I understand, in terms of if caregivers, health caregivers have sort of a responsibility or I think it's a legal requirement yeah. that if somebody comes up to them and tells them that they use cannabis, they have to disclose that. Um, but is that only to states where it is illegal or does that, are you finding that in Colorado as well? What, what do you know? Yeah, that's a really great question. So in some ways, when cannabis was illegal, it made that question a little bit different. Um, you know, I think that if providers felt that the illegal cannabis use was problematic, it was, it was very easy to report that and step into their mandatory reporter uh, shoes. I will say that le legalizing and liberalizing cannabis in Colorado has really forced providers to wrestle with their mandatory re reporter status in a way I don't think anybody was quite prepared for. Um, technically and legally, 
providers are only supposed to report in the state of Colorado are only supposed to report cannabis use if they think it also coincides with child abuse and neglect. The problem is that most healthcare providers don't necessarily feel trained in sussing out what abuse and neglect might look like. And in the case of somebody walking into a hospital giving birth and being discharged in, you know, 24 to 72 hours, there's not really a relationship between those providers and that patient to be able to even make such determinations. So in my experience, providers often will err on what they think is the safe side by reporting somebody's use. Um, and, and I've also found that there's lots of providers who are unaware of what that report then turns into, what, the, what might happen as a result of that report. Um, and often providers will think that, that resources for treatment or recovery, particularly if they're worried that somebody really is abusing cannabis, are going to be available as a part of that response to that report. And that specifically is not often how it is. Not only because um, that those resources simply don't exist, but they don't really exist in the, in the context of the child welfare system in a way that really promotes long-term recovery. So I, I have a lot of compassion for healthcare providers and how they're navigating it, which is one of the reasons this sort of black and white law that we have in Colorado about a toxicology test at birth makes that toxicology test so appealing because then providers, it's just a simple line, the baby tested positive or not. And if they did test positive, you are supposed to report. And um, you know, and I think then that test becomes a way to mitigate some of the larger anxiety about trying to evaluate somebody's parenting skills. And what we know is that lots of folks can use substances and parent successfully. And there are folks who don't parent successfully with or without substances. So it really is a hard thing to evaluate when folks are thinking about sending a baby home with a family they don't even know. Mm. And then that brings us also a little bit into the question of the idea that just because that substance was found in the baby's body doesn't mean that it's always in the baby's body. Because, well, right? Go, it, you explain it better than I can. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's the, so umbilical cord testing, which is becoming increasingly common, um, can test exposure back to 20 weeks of pregnancy. So it doesn't give you any information about when or how much or what, what timing or what reason that person might have used cannabis. Um, and what we test for in whether we're testing the baby's blood, the mom's urine, the baby's urine is not THC, even though that's how we talk about it, it's actually a metabolite of THC. So THC tetrahydro, uh, I'm not going to say the long name right here, uh, gets broken down into carboxy THC in the body. And that metabolite is actually what we test for. And that metabolite remains in the body for a long time after exposure, sometimes a few days, sometimes a few weeks. For somebody who uses cannabis regularly, it can actually be several weeks that that metabolite can remain in the body. So I 
I am a molecular biologist and it bothers me that we don't talk about the right molecules. And most of the public health messaging that I see centers on THC. I hear healthcare providers say that babies are testing positive for THC. And when they say that, they often think that the babies are stoned at that moment because we know that THC is the psychoactive molecule. But the molecule we test for, carboxy-THC, is not psychoactive. So even though it hangs around in the body, that baby is not experiencing psychoactive properties throughout that entire time. So to talk about it, that we test parents for THC or we test babies for THC, bothers me because it gives us a different view of what that person is experiencing. We're actually testing for a metabolite that remains in the body long after the THC is gone. Well, and if you're saying that if you do an umbilical cord testing and that can show exposure back to 20 weeks of pregnancy, that's like, you know, up to could be 20 weeks back, roughly. Um, Mm -hmm. That's a lot. So that means that at any point, regardless of how often, like that person could have had one, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, instance of using the substance. 20 weeks before and then at that point I mean it, it I, I hear what you're saying that it is really hard to extrapolate what the usage and risk is from just getting a test that says yes there's this metabolite here yeah I mean it's the difference between exposure and the outcomes related to the substance use itself, which is one of the trickiest parts of this conversation. We really right now in our culture like to hold pregnant folks responsible for the environment of their bodies and as though they are existing in a vacuum and you know the idea we call them here in Colorado substance exposed newborns. It's not simply the exposure to a substance that might have harm. It's actually, I mean, child abuse and neglect should be based on the parent's use and how that affects their ability to parent, not that they used and that their baby was exposed to it. Because we don't have any data to show that that there's a direct relationship between exposure and abuse and neglect. In fact, we have lots of data to suggest that that is not the case. Uh, There's a great study in Jamaica uh, where ganja is enculturated in a different sort of way. And the group of people who use it regularly also tend to sell it and so have are of higher economic class than folks who don't use it as regularly. And what they found was that the babies who were exposed to cannabis in utero and through breastfeeding actually did better simply because their perinatal environment was better. So to myopically look at what's happening in the uterus and to hold that individual responsible for all the things that the fetus experiences through their uterus forgets that that person lives in an environment of whatever they're experiencing, whether it be poverty, whether it be wealth, whether it be a super stressful job, whether it be they get to eat organic food every day. Um, But I get frustrated with the conversation and how we focus on exposure because it pretends that the pregnant person exists in and then exists outside of an environment in and of themselves. And I wish we supported pregnant people 
in order to help them support their growing lives inside of them. I wish we supported postpartum people so that they could then support their newborns and their children. But we really like to separate babies and and children, babies from their parents um, in both a physiologic and sort of a legal child welfare point of view. And in terms of the environment, this is such a great, like if you look at the Environmental Working Group, they have a great research where they took the, the they tested the umbilical cord blood um, of, I don't remember the data set, but quite a number yeah. of babies. And they found so many different chemicals that totally. have been even banned in the U.S. for decades, but yeah. they're so pervasive that they stick around in the environment and you're exposed to them and then they become, they go to the utero so, and to the baby. So it's that rationale of just because it's there, therefore you are neglecting your child. Right. I can, I understand completely how that is just such an enormous, unfair leap. And so you had mentioned at the beginning of the of the talk that what you would like to see is to have this conversation centered around parental autonomy and that, that you would wish those were the changes. So mm-hmm. what let's take another break. When we come back, let's talk about a little bit of, of that. Like what do pregnant people and new parents need to consider in terms of uh, uh, that? health risks benefit conversation and also what they need to know from the system because it's an imperfect system to navigate it to be able to make their own informed choices that are right for them within their parental parental right we will be right back tell me if this sounds familiar you've taken gorgeous photos of your baby or your kids and then when you want to share them it is a pain either trying to find the photos or figuring out the group text that they should go to and then also remembering that say aunt helen only does email so you need to send her image separately or like in my case where my husband is a photographer who takes magnificent photos that I rarely actually get to see because they live on his phone or end up scattered in text messages that I can't easily find. Enter the Family Album app, which was created to give parents a secure and easy way to share photos and videos with your loved ones. Basically, it's a personal space for your family's memories without third-party ads or unwanted eyes and with a bunch of fabulous features. It automatically sorts photos and videos by month, allowing you to swipe back in time and easily see how your child has grown. And you can also order eight photo prints every month to be delivered to your home. The Family Album app also has unlimited storage. Plus, it's totally free. Yup, no more worrying about running out of space or being bombarded by third-party ads. So, to all the parents out there still trying to use other messaging apps for your kids' photos, level up your family photo game for free and securely with the Family Album photo sharing app. Head over to the App Store today, search Family Album, all in one word, and download the app to start creating your shared photo legacy. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Acorns, and sometimes I find that investing gets put off because it doesn't seem urgent or because with our busy lives, we may not have the time to research and manage said investments, which is why I so appreciate that Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future and that you don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. So for example, I take advantage of Acorns Roundup feature where they round up the purchase amounts I make in my linked account to the nearest dollar, and then they automatically transfer that to my invest account portfolio. Also, Acorns can recommend an expert build portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. For me, that's easy peasy investing. Head to acorns.com slash birthful or download the Acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today. Client testimonial may not be representative of all clients. Tier 1 compensation provided. Compensation provides an incentive to positively promote Acorns. View important disclosures at acorns.com slash birthful. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. Please consider your objectives, risk tolerance, and Acorns fees before investing. Acorns Advisors LLC Acorns is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are provided to clients of Acorns by Acorn Securities LLC. Member FINRA SIPC. For more information, visit acorns.com. And we are back talking with Heather Thompson. And so, Heather... So what do people need to know in terms of trying to make that informed decision of whether using cannabis during pregnancy or breastfeeding is something that they want to consider or not? Yeah, um, I really try to talk folks through a risk-benefit analysis that is centered in harm reduction. So uh, I often have people call me at some point during pregnancy. I've talked to somebody in labor. I've talked to folks right after uh, pregnancy during breastfeeding. And when they call and they're trying to evaluate their own cannabis use. And, and I will also preface this by saying I've talked to many, many, many families in the past five years. And the majority of people who are using cannabis during pregnancy and lactation are using it as medicine and using it thoughtfully and carefully. I, I want to push back a little bit against the narrative that now that cannabis is more liberalized, everybody is using it. I think use has probably increased, particularly in the younger age groups. Um, and people who use it throughout their entire pregnancy often do so with a particular reason in mind. So I ask people why they're using it, um, how they find it beneficial. Uh, I hear a lot of folks using it for chronic pain, a lot of folks using it for anxiety. Many times people have tried more traditional pharmaceuticals that they feel like they can be open with their doctors about, but they haven't um, worked very well. So I encourage people to use cannabis, not necessarily as a first resort, but to make sure that it's part of what they're thinking about in dealing with their symptoms. And then I usually encourage people to think about ways to, um, if they're postpartum, reduce exposure to babies in the same way you would smoking. So we actually postpartum have a lot of good skills around this. We know how to talk to people about sober parenting. 
Um, we know how to talk to people about using alcohol and breastfeeding because we have a sense of the metabolic curve of alcohol and we can tell them, you know, have a drink, breastfeed about two hours later. We're starting to have some data similar to that when it comes to cannabis. Um, and the, the time frame would be more like four hours potentially. And we also know how to talk to people if they use cigarettes and are breastfeeding. You know, reduce baby's exposure to smoke. Don't ever smoke around them. I encourage people to have literally a smoking jacket where they go outdoors, they put on something else. And then before they come back in, they remove that outer layer. And that they're aware that off-gassing through your mouth really does happen with cigarettes and with cannabis for about 30 minutes after. And it can sort of change the microenvironment around a baby's face. So I often give people a sense of um, staying a little bit further away until that first half an hour is over. So there's actually lots of skills we've already developed as healthcare providers, as um, consumers to think about how to reduce risk of other substances. And I just encourage people to think about that from a health point of view. I also then encourage people to think about uh, what it looks like for child welfare intersections with them. What is their risk of that? If people are uh, read as a person of color, their risk of intersecting with child welfare is higher. If someone calls me and they're on Medicaid, um, they are going to come under a different level of scrutiny and surveillance than someone using private insurance. So I try to talk to people about whether or not they disclose their cannabis use and what it might look like to go into a hospital. Most hospitals do some sort of um, urinalysis upon admission. So if you're going to go into a hospital facility, you should expect to be drug tested. And um, if you decline that drug testing, which is totally within your right, expect to have that be a red flag that folks are going to believe then that you are probably using something that you don't want to disclose. And then that really can trigger a conversation about babies, because even though pregnant folks require informed consent to be able to test their body fluid, bodily fluids, in the vast majority of states in this country, medical personnel can test bodily fluids um, of babies without parental consent or knowledge. And so I just try to tell people what that might look like if you were approaching that place, because that really can undermine somebody's first experiences of parenting, to know that a medical practitioner decided to test their baby and not tell them about it because they were the problem. Mm. And you make a great point of how we do have different considerations in terms of or, or how we approach um, counseling for using other substances that are legal, like caffeine and alcohol yes. and cigarettes. Yes. Um, yes. And so what that kind of leads me beautifully into understanding a little bit of what happens during breastfeeding and mm. cannabis exposure um, or usage. And so I had like I wrote a few things that I that a few concepts that I thought were important to explain before to to understand the conversation, yeah. um, which was can you explain um, the oral bioavailability? <laughs> yeah, the <laughs> so oral bioavailability that is babies are exposed to things in breast milk orally. 
and oral bioavailability, that is a hard word to say, isn't it, altogether, um, is really just how available is that substance to the baby when they consume it orally through breast milk. So for cannabis, the oral bioavailability is about 1% to 5%, which means that whatever is in the um, human milk, the baby would be exposed to and able, uh, would be would metabolize, would actually take on board one to 5% of whatever was in the breast milk. So they are, even though they are exposed orally to all of it, they only are able to take up one to 5% of it, which is an important thing to realize because when we think about how much a person might use and then how much shows up in their breast milk, and then the fact that their baby is exposed to one to 5% of that, we're starting to get down to pretty small amounts that a baby would be exposed to. And from the, I did read the study, the the paper that you wrote, and um, what you guys found is that in terms of how much shows up in breast milk itself, it was something like two, no, two point, what was the 2.5%? That was the relative infant dose. Right. So explain relative infant dose now for me, please. (laughs) Yeah. So that's the um, dose that the relationship between the dose the baby would experience relative to the dose that the parent consumes. And we believe generally that a relative infant dose under 10% is usually considered safe. And this was 2.5% was the calculated RID in that paper. So just like alcohol that you think, okay, if I'm going to have a glass of wine, I'll have a glass of wine right after I breastfeed. And then that's gonna, you know, stay in my body, my breast milk, my bloodstream for for alcohol, we know it's like about two hours. Right. You what you guys found was then that in terms of cannabis, it was more like four hours? Correct. And in terms of so by in four hours, it was pretty much all out of the the parent system. Exactly. So for, um, and again, there, there were most of the folks in that study used occasionally, um, and a couple folks used more regularly. And for the people who abstained for 24 hours and had undetectable amounts of THC in their breast milk, the occasional users, they consumed and by four hours after consumption, um, it was nearly down to undetectable limits again. So it was about a four-hour metabolic curve, which is about what we would expect, uh, given what we know about the pharmacokinetics of THC metabolism in the bloodstream. Because you said it exactly right. What's happening in the bloodstream is more or less what's happening in the breast milk. There's a little bit of a delay between the two when it comes to cannabis. Um, But like alcohol, the metabolic curve that we are familiar with in the bloodstream should, in fact, and did in that study, in fact, reflect what we saw in the breast milk. And so similar to alcohol in the risk-benefit analysis, we're back to really considering whether a person is having a drink here or there, or or they have a more chronic usage-need relationship for, you know, even alcoholism, right? Exactly. So um, in terms of chronic users of cannabis, you found that that 
the levels did stay stick around for a bit longer. That that's the um, that's the guess with the two subjects in that study that were probably more chronic users. Um, and in fact, that's one of Dr. Hale's next studies is he really wants to dig into folks who are using daily or near, near daily and um, see what that baseline level might look like. There are some other studies that show that the more often cannabis is used, the longer it takes to clear from the system, um, that you do sort of build up uh, some of that, both metabolite and THC can exist in adipose tissues um, and be leached out slowly if you use chronically. So that those are all the guesses and the, the data suggests that that's going to be the case, but we can't say that definitively quite yet. Okay. And so if, so the numbers of the oral bioavailability of one to 5% and having a relative infant dose of 2.5%, those, the 2.5% would be considering or assuming that, you know, that baby breastfed or drank some of that milk before it left the parent system, right? It's like within those four hours or at the peak or somewhere. Is that, am I understanding that correct? Yeah, well, that 2.5% is, um, is, yeah, relative to the dose that is happening in the parent at the same time. So if you wanted to reduce that number, uh, what that absolute number would be, you would breastfeed after having waited for a number of hours. Yes, you understood that correctly. And I think it's really important to get those details out in the open because it's just like, for for some reason, this made me think of Lisa Henderson Jack, that she is a fertility specialist that I've had on the show before. And she's like, you would not understand how many people think they can get, they can get pregnant at any point during their cycle. You can only get pregnant during six days of your cycle. So (laughs) kind of like that same idea of... if we were to think of the baby getting high, quote unquote, that could only happen at a certain time after consumption by the parent and also taking into consideration whether it's an occasional use or a chronic use. Like I know it's a very complicated conversation, um, but I think because of that, we need to also consider it a complicated conversation and a nuanced conversation and context is everything. Yeah. And, you know, again, I'll come back to this idea. Cannabis is used as medicine by some people. You know, rarely are people using beer or wine as as strictly medicine. It might be a coping piece of their life, but there are folks who are using cannabis as medicine. And I would love to see us embrace the nuance that we're able to have about antidepressant use or blood pressure medication use or, you know, the ways that we can talk people through their medicines through pregnancy and breastfeeding. And that requires a lot of nuance, a lot of individual risk benefit analysis. That is all really I would love to see us do with cannabis is to actually start talking about it um, a little bit more the way we know how to talk about other medications rather than vilifying its use right out of the gate. I mean, you know, there are the- so our breast milk actually has endocannabinoids. So the reason exocannabinoids like THC work on our body is we have a, a system that already uses molecules, cannabinoid mo- molecules to do all sorts of things. And there are some theories that 
we, we know there are endocannabinoids in breast milk. And the idea of babies getting milk drunk, you know, that like totally floppy eyes roll into the back of their heads look might be a result of their exposure to endocannabinoids. And I think it's really interesting to think about we've got this system that we actually really love to watch how it works. And yet if we are using exogenous cannabinoids, it instantly comes with a sense of judgment. And I just wish we could suspend that judgment a little bit and ask a few more questions about how those exocannabinoids are being used and the ways they might be influencing how our endocannabinoids are functioning. And be more respectful of that person as well and their ability to, you know, their autonomy and ability to be, take care of themselves and take care of their child in the sense, right, in the sense that, you know, I, I get that people don't like get pregnant or start breastfeeding and then become a chronic daily high cannabis user. (laughs) That is exactly right. I love that. (laughs) Say that again. That is exactly right. And we don't expect people with high blood pressure when they become pregnant to all of a sudden not have high blood pressure anymore. Right. And so these people that are faced with this really having to sit down and and have a deep conversation about what that the risk assessment is for them is because they are probably have a higher usage of cannabis or more chronic usage of kind of cannabis as you were saying as medicine or because it provides something in their life that yes. they need to an extent to function like it's yes. not just oh because i want to get high right right and that's the- and even if it's that i mean gabor mate talks about addiction being rooted in trauma and if somebody has had trauma in their life sometimes using cannabis to deal with that trauma and function is the best way that they've learned how to do that And I wish we could hold them in the space they're in and help them deal with that trauma. Because we know for sure that if we make them a more healed, more improve their well-being, they're going to be able to do that as a parent for their child as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, And one phrase that really stuck to me in, in... The, the reading that I did was um, you had a PDF and I can't remember which one it was, but it mentioned how breastfeeding can be a protective factor against child abuse, abuse and neglect. Yeah. And so having that conversation of, well, do you in, in the risk assessment of what is it better to stop breastfeeding or breastfeed while using cannabis? And considering that and, and having that assumption that if you're using if cannabis, if you're ingesting cannabis then or smoking, I'm try, like the words, the specific words is not coming to me using um, that it can be tied to child abuse and neglect. Right. If it's detected yeah. in, in by law in, in the testing for the baby, then it's assumed that it's child abuse and neglect. But this parent is actually trying to breastfeed their child, which is a protective factor against child abuse and neglect. So can you talk a little bit more about what that that consideration, that conversation? 
Yeah, um, it's probably one of the pieces I'm most frustrated about the climate in Colorado right now. Um, we are in a place where the vast majority of hospitals are not encouraging breastfeeding after if somebody either has demonstrated or suspected cannabis use during their prenatal period. Um, that I have heard stories of folks not being given pumps, folks not being offered lactation services. A few hospitals are offering waivers now where you basically say, I understand that I am potentially harming my baby and I'm letting these healthcare providers off the hook. Um, you know, and, and I thought we were at a place of, of understanding not even that breastfeeding can be good for everybody's health and well-being and mental well-being, um, which is how it protects against child abuse and neglect in the long run. But I thought we were at a place of really understanding the risks of not breastfeeding, the health risks, the financial risks. And I am surprised that we have so quickly moved to an abstinence-only perspective when it comes to cannabis and breastfeeding, and that in fact, we're actively preventing people from establishing a breastfeeding relationship because we're concerned about the long-term impacts of cannabis use. Uh, I think it's myopic. Um, I think it's reducing breast milk to simply its constituents. And again, it's ignoring the context of what physiologic breastfeeding is between mammals, it's much more than just food. It's a place, it's a relationship, it's a hormonal profile, it's um, a sense of competency, a sense of purpose, a biologic tie to your offspring, all of which is undermined if breastfeeding doesn't exist. And I never want to ever shame anybody for not breastfeeding. We all have our own journey. And I am speaking to people who desire to breastfeed, want to breastfeed. And right now in Colorado, the system, whether it be lactation folks, uh, policy folks, hospital administrators, nurses, midwives, pediatricians are really not having any kind of nuance about their conversation around cannabis using folks and breastfeeding. Um, and they're saying things that are ultimately going to reduce people's openness with their providers. Uh, I, had, I had someone who had used cannabis for chronic pain prior to becoming pregnant. Once she found out she was pregnant, she stopped. She was actually drug tested throughout her pregnancy and tested negative. She and her baby were drug tested at birth. They both tested negative. When she went to her pediatrician, the pediatrician said, for me to not report you to CPS and know that you are breastfeeding, you must require me to drug test your baby every time you come to the pediatrician because I don't believe you're not gonna go back to those habits. And at this point, this woman had been without these habits for almost a year and had proved that repeatedly to the system. And so then what happened? She did not go back to that pediatrician. It took a while for her to find another pediatrician and get in to see them and feel comfortable talking about her experiences as a new mom. So that kind of punitive, we, we know the research is super clear that the more punitive healthcare providers support folks, doulas, anybody supporting family members, 
the more punitive we are about substance use during pregnancy and lactation, the more underground people go and the less help they get. So um, I, I would encourage the same non-punitive conversation around breastfeeding than I, than I would around pregnancy. And the truth is the amount of cannabis that babies are exposed to, even if someone is a chronic user, even if there is THC in their breast milk most of the time, is vanishingly small. It's, it's very small. And I really question us shutting down this mammalian physiologic process that has adapted for us to succeed as parents and progeny for this very hypothetical fear that is related to an herb that has actually been used in pregnancy and lactation for 4,000 years. You know, cannabis has been around for as long as humans have been around. It's not a new substance. And somehow we've made it this far. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have concerns and that we should support people who are using it in an abusive or an addictive way. But I am deeply concerned at how we're shutting down breastfeeding as a result of our theoretical fears about exposure to cannabis. Well, and it's a matter of stigma, shame, and bias. Yeah, completely, 100%. Because if they, if healthcare providers and the healthcare system had, A, the actual willingness to even try to have a nuanced conversation, right? Yeah. Not just get the black and white. And then looked at the evidence that, as you are looking at it, like you see the evidence, you read the evidence and you understand what it means and take away the bias and the and the stigma and the shame, then maybe the conversation would be completely different. Yeah. A more supportive conversation and and one that would then benefit the families themselves and encourage breastfeeding, not take that away from them. Right. Yeah. You know, and I do understand the context of our system. Healthcare providers don't have any time for mm -hmm. nuanced conversations. You know, pediatricians are generally not trained in breastfeeding. Um, it's not a required part of their medical education. So I, you, I, I understand that I, I am deeply imbued in the um, midwifery model of care that has a continuity of care and a, uh, the ability to create a therapeutic relationship that doesn't always exist in our current maternity pediatric care system. So I do want to I do want to make that context really clear that pediatricians have a heck of a lot on their plates when they're trying to see babes in the early days. And the need to just have a test as a way to draw a line in the sand, I can understand the appeal of that. But that's different than, yeah. like, I, I, I definitely hear that. I definitely hear that. But that is different from the example that you shared about how this mom was clean for over a right. year and then the pediatrician was still falling into more of a power play dynamic of well if yeah. you don't let me test your baby every time because I don't believe you and trust really needs to go both ways how can you trust somebody totally. to be your child's doctor or your doctor if they don't trust you I mean right clearly the that was the best answer of well this this relationship needs to end and i need to find somebody else because you're not the best right. doctor for me uh, right 
that that frustration just hearing it i didn't have I to know. like just hearing it frustrates me to no end uh i'm so sorry um <laughs> <laughs> i know and you know i never i often don't hear what happens to these folks like i chat with them over the course of a few weeks while they're navigating a part of their story. And then I rarely get to find out like, how'd they land? What happened? Is she, you know, is she still breastfeeding? That's always my question. Like, was that such a difficult experience that it impacted her breastfeeding relationship? Like, that's my other worry is that breastfeeding relationships can be really tenuous in the early days and weeks. And um, they're as emotional as they are how to get the good latch. And um, that's the other sadness that I see in the, a lot of folks that I support is their sense of their ability to parent is being undermined mm. in, in those very early days. Um, we had a client who really had a terrible in-hospital experience. Um, because the providers were pretty judgmental about her cannabis use. And she was investigated by Child Protective Services. And she's about two years postpartum now. And she still talks about how her heart races, total P PTSD, when anybody drives up her driveway and she hears the gravel, you know, crinkle under their cars because that sound made her worry every time in those early days that Child Protective Services was going to be at her door and take her baby away. Mm. And she, and that, it's her second born, and they've had a really different bonding experience and are still really suffering from the trauma of the fear of investigation in those first few days and weeks. And we're two years later. And so that, that when you ask me, what have I learned about child welfare? That's the other big piece that I would love for folks in my demographic, especially to understand. Uh, an investigation by a child welfare person, simply having somebody suggest that you are not a good enough parent in those early days and weeks of having a baby really undermines a lot of the physiologic and emotional and psychological processes that make for good long-term parent-baby relationships. And just the threat of investigation, just the threat of judgment, just the threat of child removal can undermine that relationship in a way that I think probably is intergenerational, if I'm really honest. And we shouldn't underestimate the impact of having your parenting questioned and feeling surveilled by the state they are extraordinarily impactful experiences to have as a new parent. And we often dismiss them in the idea that we're keeping babies safe and that that's just part of the process. And I would argue that they're more impactful than that. And we should be thinking about investigations like that a lot more sparingly than we do. Mm. And it's such a vulnerable time in Ooh, life, being gosh. a new parent, giving birth, oh being God. pregnant, right? So on top of it's and, and it's physiologically, I'm not just saying, it oh, is. you're more vulnerable. No, like physiologically, you yeah. are more vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and to have this added to it, along with your identity yeah. change, like it is, it is not only traumatic, it is downright abusive, frankly. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. And and I keep speaking to the fact that my demographic, you know, white middle class ladies like me don't know this because we don't know this. That we we our community is not intersecting with child welfare in the same way as black and brown communities are. When I talk about this issue with majority black and brown folks, it is a radically different conversation because the health risks actually take second to the child welfare risks most of the time in their minds. And they're really looking to navigate that first and mitigate the health risks as need be. When I talk about this with primarily white audiences, I'm often having to really say, no, the risk of child welfare is huge for some communities, even though it's not something that you experience. Um, and, and that risk that, that, that is, is a risk related to what kind of insurance you might have or uh, what kind of income you might have or what kind of race or ethnicity you have, we should be talking about that risk a lot because we can, th those are systemic changes that we can affect. Health risks are something we're going to always be uncovering information about, but we know these systemic risks related to child welfare. But because the majority of folks who are legislating, policing, uh, regulating this are white folks, I, my experience is white folks are constantly underestimating the child welfare risks. So I appreciate you giving me a chance to talk about this because I have learned that there was so much I didn't know about this part of being a parent and that this is a huge part of parenting for many communities that mm. don't look like me. What are some resources to help people navigate the child welfare welfare system? Are there resources mm. to help them with navigating this part? Because I feel like there's, like you were saying, there's plenty of research that I, we can point them to in terms of the health risks. Um, right. If, you know, you have tons of that research on your website, but in terms of the idea of how do I navigate the child welfare system and what are those considerations? What's the risk there that I need to weigh? Is there a place? Hmm. Uh, there's not great. There's not great centralized resources. Um, folks can always call us at Elephant Circle, no matter where you live. We can sometimes help you put you in touch with somebody who's also experienced what you're experiencing or some legal help. So we are happy to serve as a resource no matter where you are if we can help you. Um, National Advocates for Pregnant Women uh, is a group of lawyers that think a lot about um, the legal ramifications of how pregnant people navigate the world and talk can really help people navigate child welfare. Um, the Bronx Defenders, they actually are writing and um, doing a ton of work around bringing to light some of these child welfare issues. And then I'm, there's another group, I'm, I want to say Movement for Family Power. I'm going to have to maybe get back to you and tell you the exact name so you can put it in your notes. Um, but they are another group that is also working with affected parents to really help people navigate child welfare. Um, the, what I would say is if you have any worries about child welfare involvement, reach out to somebody sooner rather than later. Um, the initial interactions that a person has with child welfare are absolutely critical to the way the case unfolds. And often those first 
interactions take the parent off guard. They're not even totally sure they're having them or they're angry or defensive or um, you know whatever it might be. And in fact, getting to a place of being in your power so that you can have a really positive interaction, as hard as that may sound to those of us who would find that interaction really tricky, um, that's gonna help your case long-term. Mm. Yeah, no, thank you so much for all those resources. I'll put them in the show links because definitely um, it sounds like it's something that is even more nuanced than <laughs> yes. all the conversations. Well, it's so we unpredictable. I mean, that's one of the other things I've learned is that, um, you know, child welfare is rarely a criminal thing. It's rarely in the courts. That's the stuff we hear about, but there's lots of other investigations that happen outside the courts. And unlike the courts where, you know, you have to be Mirandized, somebody needs to have a warrant to come into your house, you know, people are going to tell you what's happening. Child welfare is a very uh, nimble process that can be sometimes hard to predict. Um, and and you might not even know what's going on all the time because there isn't the same due process as there is in more criminal proceedings. So it, it really, I mean, nuanced barely begins to to um, cover it because it really ends up being a case by case conversation. Mm. Um, and I saw on your website they also had a couple of resources to help in risk assessment, and I'm going to mention them and let me know if there's any other ones. There was the Infant Risk Center and mm -hmm. LAT Med. Mm -hmm. um, are there any other ones? Those basic, those are good. Solid. Yeah, the Infant yeah. Risk Center, so that's Dr. Hale, um, and they're the ones who came to Colorado to do the little study that we did in 2018. Um, and he, there, he's always going to give you, I mean, that's what the Infant Risk Center does so well, is just give you the parameters, the pharmacokinetic parameters that we know, so that you can make a good analysis for yourself. LactMed um, is the resource generally populated by the CDC recommendations. And um, it's becoming a little bit more mainstream in that they are uh, at advocating more for abstinence than anything else. But um, the CDC historically has been, a, had a little bit better conversation about the data. So LACTMED can be a, a good spot. Great. Heather, is there anything that you wanted to make sure we said that we haven't gotten to yet? Hmm. And I think we were a bit over, like I was a little bit all over the place, but we covered a lot of ground. We did. I guess that I would just offer, we all have biases around this topic of perinatal substance use. And I think if you are working with folks and you ever encounter people that are using substances during the perinatal period, Check in with your own biases and really root that conversation in compassion for that person and why they are using those substances and empathy for that person. And I talk a lot about therapeutic relationships. Pregnancy is actually a wonderful time of adaptation. Um, you know, we, our bodies are adapting, our psyches are adapting, our spirits are adapting. And in fact, lots of people can come to terms with substance use during pregnancy if they aren't feeling shamed or blamed about it. 
So I really encourage people to think of what would it look like for me to have a therapeutic relationship with somebody while they're navigating their substance use in pregnancy. And that simple compassion, empathy, and support has the potential to help them reduce that substance use even further. Judgment, shame, punitive responses generally is going to drive people into hiding. It's going to increase trauma responses, and it generally does not improve the substance use during the perinatal period. So, like you know, like us birth workers center much of what we do in compassion and empathy, um, I would say the same thing for this conversation. And really checking your own biases and the things that you think about this and pushing ourselves to expand the way we view people's use of substances as something that they're not doing to harm their baby, but something that they're doing to cope with their lives. And what would it look like if we address that piece and the harm to the baby would reduce as we help them cope with their lives differently? Mm, that is beautifully said. <laughs> so wonderful. That's a little too long for a t-shirt. However, <laughs> Thank you so very much, Heather, for this conversation. Thank if people you. want to connect with you, know, yeah. follow, you know, ask you questions or follow what you're doing, how can they do that? Um, feel free to go to our website, elephantcircle.net. Feel free to email me, heather at elephantcircle.org. Fantastic. Thank you so, so very much. Thank you. It's been great. Mighty Ones, find the in-depth show notes for this episode at birthful.com, where you can also learn more about me, the show, send me messages, and more. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you. The title song for this podcast is Vive Ace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. Oh, and I was so focused on my conversation with Heather that I forgot to ask her what she had for breakfast. When I followed up, she said that coffee and an apple are her go-to breakfast items most days. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to a mighty parent as they share their amazing story here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so very much for listening. This episode is copyright 2019 by Adriana Lozada. Hey, Mighty One. Did you know that if you started listening to one birthful episode per day at the start of your pregnancy, your baby would be about three months old before you got through all of them? That is so much birthful. So to ease us into the summer and to help you catch up on your listening, we're going back to releasing one episode per week instead of two. Now you know.